This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by my friend, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the B'nai Zion Foundation. And before joining B'nai Zion, Rabbi Lam served as a Special Advisor to the President of Yeshiva University, where he oversaw all strategic initiatives emerging from the Office of the President. Rabbi Lam is a graduate of Yeshiva University himself, and earned a master's degree as a Fulbright Scholar from University College in London, and a PhD in Ancient Judaism and Christianity from Princeton University. Rabbi Lamb has been published widely in sources such as the Wall Street Journal, the Jerusalem Post, Tablet, and First Things, and I am delighted to be here with Rabbi Lamb to discuss his chosen passage, which is, for those of you following along with your Bibles, Deuteronomy 4.6. Uh, Ari, welcome. It is a pleasure to be here. So before we uh, delve into this incredible passage of Deuteronomy 4.6, why don't you tell us a little bit about the context of the passage and why you chose it? Sure, sure. So this is from what I would call the funeral oration of Moses, the great leader of the Jewish people. So, you know, Moses leads the Jewish people out of Egypt. He he rescues them uh, as God's agent from bondage, and he leads them to Mount Sinai, where they receive the, the tablets of the law, bequeathing essentially the foundations of Western civilization to the world. And he leads them all the way to the, to the threshold of the promised land. And then that's where he passes away just on the eve of fulfilling his life's goal. And it's at that moment when Moses knows that he's going to die on the very edge of the promised land, that he delivers this magnificent transformational speech final words to his people, to the gathered Israelites, and then speaking across the generations, of course, to all of us. And it's in that context, right at the very beginning of his oration, when where he's going to lay out the terms of Jewish history, where he's going to lay out the terms of, of, of the biblical worldview, where he explains all of the rules and regulations and, and worldview that's going to mold Israelite society and the Hebrew Republic in the land of Israel, mm-hmm. that he begins his, his uh, oration with what is essentially just sort of a review of history until this point, as and, well and, as in... I, I think he said something very interesting. When you, you classified correctly this oration as magnificent and transformative, and that is interesting because when we're introduced to Moses way back in Exodus, we're told that he's a speech problem. Yes, absolutely. And so, here he gives... The, and here he, he... So we go from having a speech problem where he actually tells God that he doesn't want to be God's messenger to Pharaoh because he's not a good speaker to, in Deuteronomy, giving the greatest speech anyone has ever given. Yeah, and it, it's it's one of those things where, you know, reading this <laughs> as kind of a young rabbi coming up through the ranks, I, I always really empathize with this because that transition is one that <laughs> that young rabbis, and I'm sure rabbis' husbands as well, yes. all, uh, <laughs> all aspire to go through, where you start off and no one thinks that you could give a speech worth a damn, and then all of a sudden you grow up and you're able to, uh, and you're able to communicate 
God's ideas with with the best fluency that you're able to master. That, that is so interesting. That really, is that the experience of of a of a, a lot of? Uh, I mean, you've grown up your entire. Your, your grandfather's is one of the great rabbis of the 20th century. One of the towering figures of American Judaism and of Torah world, of course, Norman Lamb. I mean, is that so? You've grown up with with the greatest rabbi and great rabbis. Is that the experience? I mean, is is basically are we learning from Moses? The experience of being a rabbi. It's a great question. You know, my grandfather, of course, is my, you know, in Hebrew, we call him Maurice Zakeni. He's my my elder teacher, the one who ordained me. You know, I'll never forget the very first time that I ever spoke from the pulpit at the Jewish Center, which was his synagogue. What year was that? Uh, this was, I would have to guess, 2012, something like that, 2013. How old were you uh, then? I, at the time, was sort of like in my my 20s, my my low to mid 20s. And it was the first time that I was going to ever give a a uh, a speech from the main sanctuary's pulpit. You know, I, I'd spoken before in the auxiliary room, you know, in the you know, in the young couples, uh, young couples gathering. But I'd never spoken before in the main sanctuary. And I was uh, I was all prepared and I was kind of, uh, you know, uh, I felt like a hot shot. And I had prepared this incredible uh, what in Hebrew is called a drasha, a sermon. And uh, I was walking to synagogue with my grandfather and my grandfather, you know, as he got older, he starts to walk slower. So at the time, you know, we were walking down. At that uh, point, Columbus your grandfather Avenue. was probably he was 80, actually. in uh, Yeah, at the probably time, he would have been in his 80s. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were walking down Columbus Avenue. I'll never forget where I was. And <laughs> my grandfather says to me, so, uh, you know, we got a long walk ahead of us. Tell me what you're going to talk about. So I was I told him and I was all ready for a pat on the back and an attaboy. And I'll never forget. He literally stopped walking. And he says to me, that is terrible. What? Really? <laughs> and now my grandfather, because he's a he's a warm, compassionate genius, uh, he'll never criticize you if he doesn't have a solution. So for the rest of the walk to the Jewish center, which was about a block and a half, but you know, a slow block and a half, uh, my grandfather said to me, you know, so what's the main idea? Uh, oh, I think that's actually wonderful. Let's break it down. Here's some wonderful turns of phrase. My grandfather is an orator par excellence. So he was very sensitive to the aesthetic of speaking, you know, and he's, so he says to me, you know, if, as long as you rearrange this and you keep that in mind and you do this and you break it down, you should be able to deliver a great, uh, you know, a great speech. And I'll never forget. I don't even remember a single word of the prayers that I recited that morning. I was so terrified, but I was able to, you know, rejigger the, the, uh, the sermon. And by the time I got up, I have no memory of giving it because I I had a <laughs> an anxiety blackout, but uh, fortunately I was uh, promoted thereafter, so it must have been all right. Did your but, grandfather uh, praise you afterwards? Oh, he did, and I'll I'll never forget coming down from the sermon and him giving me a big hug and telling me how wonderful it was. But it was uh, it was one of those uh, it was one of those moments like the transition that you just described, where you go from where you feel like you traverse that distance from someone who is hard of speech and heavy of expression and get to the point where you can actually deliver a sermon that's worth the, or that dignifies your audience and is worth their time. And in this case, you know, Moses essentially gets to the banks of the river Jordan and ends up delivering an absolute barn burner of a speech. I mean, this is a, this is a, a, an oration. The book of Deuteronomy is essentially a single first person speech for Moses. This is an oration that literally defines a civilization, not just Jewish society and the Israelite civilization, but essentially all of Western history. We live, we live in the world of the speech. Yeah. yeah. This is the, this is the speech that built our civilization. Right. 
I mean, it's magnificent, really magnificent. And it's this moment, this kind of these early chapters, what we now call chapters of this speech, including Deuteronomy 4, uh, which is the 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 section that I, I'm going to focus on. This is where Moses begins by, first of all, explaining how the Israelites got to this point in their history, all of the trials and tribulations that they encountered. Yeah, he's basically their- giving a, a commentary on the Torah that he largely lived. Exactly. And not only, and this is what's what's critical for what we're going to speak about, not only is Moses sort of, not only is this the first, as you put it, biblical commentary in history, right? Because this is Moses commenting on his earlier work. It's also where Moses, for the first time, defines his earlier life as a work. So beforehand, there was no such thing as as the Bible. It was just the Israelites with Moses and Aaron at their head and Miriam at their head living their lives. This is the first time where Moses, as an elder statesman, as an older man, is able to sit down and reflect on his life's work. And you see that it hits him like a bullet that, oh, my goodness, my life has actually been a has actually been a body of work. It's almost been a text. And he reflects on his life for the very first time. Until now, he'd just been living life. This is the first moment where he actually reflects. And that's where I think some of the brilliance of this Deuteronomy oration comes out. Yeah, very interesting. So Deuteronomy 4, so he's really beginning the speech because this goes on for a couple dozen more chapters. And so Deuteronomy 4, 6, and I'm so delighted that you picked this because as we were discussing, I think this is not only, this is really this, not only the summing up of the Bible, but this is, this is what it means to be a Jew. This is the great moral ambition of the Jew is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, 6. Absolutely. So, so why don't you just read the exact line so everyone knows, and just so you can read it, so people can think about it and focus on it. Because, you know, as we were discussing, we live in Moses' world, and as Jews, this is God and Moses telling us who we should be. So the verse reads, Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, are, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And this, as you put it, this is the mission statement of the Jewish people. And this is the the charge of the entire Israelite experiment. This is the biblical worldview summed up here. And I want to call your attention in particular to a, a phrase that appears actually twice in this verse and that has resonance throughout the rest of the Bible. And that is the phrase wisdom and understanding. So in Hebrew, that's chokhmah ubina. And that's in the Haggadah too. Even if we were all men of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, it would still be incumbent upon us to do the Seder. Exactly. Kulanu chachamim, kulanu nevonim, even were we all wise and were we all men of understanding or people of understanding, we would surely have to continue the ritual of the Seder anyway. And what's fascinating is, and I think this is an underappreciated point, but Moses here, this is actually the first time and perhaps one of the only times that Moses actually defines what the Bible is in his view. And for Moses, the Bible is not holiness, although it contains holiness and it and it speaks about holiness. The Bible is not justice, although it contains justice and speaks about justice. The Bible is not love, although it contains love and speaks about love. The Bible is chokhmah ubina, wisdom and understanding. Yes. And this is critical because in the book of Genesis, and now I'm going to bring you all the way back to another very familiar story, um, all the way back in the book of Genesis, 
we find actually this description of a particular area of knowledge repeated or or, or pre-repeated in the mouth of another very famous biblical figure, and that is Joseph. So if you think back and if you're following, you know, along at home in your in uh, in your Bible, if you think all the way back to Genesis 41, chapter 41, you'll find yourself smack in the middle of the Joseph story. And the Joseph story, you know, has <laughs> been made most popular by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, and if you uh, if you know the Joseph story from that context, so I remember as as a kid, you know, as much as I, I would study the Bible uh, every week. You know, having watched that that uh, production and been enthralled by it in my head, sort of the Joseph story, you know, was kind of this uh, weird moment in history where everybody spoke in in rhyme and punctuated their thoughts with show stopping numbers and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, the truth is the Joseph story is a is is a tale of political intrigue, first and foremost. So essentially, Joseph is the uh, youngest of Jacob's children. He gets sold as a slave into Egypt. And he eventually, you know, rags to riches, kind of rises through the ranks to the point where where eventually uh, Pharaoh, who's the emperor of the Egyptian empire, the most powerful empire in the ancient world, is faced with a challenge. And that challenge, as Joseph ends up revealing to him, is that he's going to experience a major uh, boom economy and then shortly thereafter he's going to experience what can only be described as a, a great depression he is faced with the challenge of having to navigate this very difficult and challenging political landscape and he turns to joseph and asks joseph who's this sort of wise israelite who has this reputation for for discernment he asks him what am i supposed to do and you kind of like imagine you can imagine yourself as joseph this sort of young kid just out of Hebrew day school and the president of the United States is asking you, how, how should I conduct my economy? So that's kind of how that's kind of the position. That right. Joseph's, Joseph's under 30 years old at that point. Yeah. Joseph's like this little kid, if you can imagine. He's sort of like Doogie Hauser standing before before the Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the known universe. And Pharaoh says, hey, you know, Doogie, what should I do? And Joseph in in uh, uh, chapter 41, verse 33 suggests the following course of action. He says, now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Now, here's where it's very important for a person to to have some insight into the original language in which uh, this narrative was delivered to us, which is in biblical Hebrew, because although the the words that I just translated as discerning and wise in English, they they uh, that's what they are in Hebrew. The words are navon v'chacham. Namely, chokhmah and bina, wisdom and understanding. The very same phrase that Moses used to describe the Torah itself are the words that, that, that you know, Moses used to describe the Bible itself are the words that Joseph uses to describe what he's doing here with Pharaoh. Now, let's reflect upon that for a minute because it is so critical. Yeah. What Joseph is describing is the realm of politics and that realm the world of political, of political policy, of political thought, of political philosophy, that is the exact description that Moses uses to describe the Bible itself. So this is, and, and this to me is, is one of the most critical teachings of Hebrew civilization, of Jewish literature, of biblical life. And that is, 
I think there's this sort of popular notion within the broader society that politics is dirty and religion is pure. And if you ever mix them, certainly, you know, and and certainly we're used to thinking of, a, a, you know, a high wall of separation between church and state, which is, you know, a, a lovely feature of our society that protects a lot of people. And, and we're used to thinking of religious liberty as being very important, and it certainly is. And, you know, that actually is a legacy of the of the Hebrew Bible itself. But what's fascinating is that layered on top of all of those very good ideas is this basic sense that politics and religion don't mix. And what Deuteronomy 4.6 comes to tell you is not only do politics and religion mix, but religion practiced correctly is politics. And, and I'd like, if I can, to unpack that a little bit. Sure. Because what Moses is basically saying is that the Hebrew Bible itself, the Bible, is the best and most ideal expression of political life that could possibly exist. Now, you have to set that kind of in the context of the ancient world, because in the ancient world, politics was essentially a synonym for warfare, for conquest. So if you think of some of the, you know, the great and terrible civilizations of the ancient world, the the uh, the Babylonian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the uh, the Hittite Empire, the Assyrians. And then you fast forward a little bit in time and you get to the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire. So all of these great imperial experiments essentially postulated, essentially proposed that the best way to engage other people was to dominate them. That if you have a good idea, if Rome had a great idea at its heart and wanted to export that idea to the rest of the world, the way to do it was by force. Right. The way to do it was by conquering through bringing armies throughout the world and mold and forcing the world to conform to the shape that you want it to be in. And you could even, you know, extend this to uh, uh, you could even extend this to the modern period. You know, you can you can think of all sorts of ways in which people, you know, wish to export their their ideas by force. You can look at every tyrant in in uh, every tyrant in history who's had that. By, by definition, that's what tyrants do. Exactly. And this to me is the the essential revolution that the Hebrew Bible sets into motion in human affairs, which is that, in fact, if you wish to spread true and virtuous and proper ideas, the way to do that is actually not through warfare. So think about, for example, what the Hebrew Bible thinks about uh, thinks about warfare. The people that are the protagonists of the Hebrew Bible, the Israelites, are granted by, by the Almighty a certain space to live. They're granted the land of Israel, and that's where they're supposed to make their home. But fascinatingly, not only do the, are the Israelites never asked to conquer land beyond the land of Israel, they are in fact prohibited in almost right. all respects from expanding their influence beyond a certain sphere. And if they do, then God will charge, then God charges them with murder. In other words, if the Jews were to try and, you know, if the, the, the Israelites of old were to try and conquer, uh, were to try and conquer India, for example, they would be considered murderers in the or eyes Egypt. of God. Right. Or Egypt, right. They would be considered murderers in the eyes of God. Therefore, the question, and that, and yet at the same time, the Israelites are asked to, uh, and in fact, it's their mission to be a light unto the nations, to spread the values and the virtues and the beauty and the bounty of God throughout human civilization. So, how are they supposed to do this? I mean, in the ancient world, it would have almost, it would have seemed a, an oxymoron for you to have to be a light unto the nations, but not be allowed to conquer. And this is where the Hebrew biblical revolution comes into full flowering. Moses announces to his people on the banks of the River Jordan, on the eve of their entrance into the land of Israel, which they will be asked to conquer. 
Moses says to them, this is the first and only time that you are being granted permission to do this. Because once you have set up your homeland, once you have rooted yourself, anchored yourself in a piece of God's earth, which is, which is important to be to have roots and to have a home and to have a homeland is a very important thing. But once you've put down roots in your homeland, your task from here on out is certainly not to uh, become hermits. On the contrary, if, if the Israelites were to have become moral and cultural hermits, they would be failing in the chart that God gave them. On the, on the contrary, they are supposed to become inf deeply influential across human civilization. And the way that you do that is through chokhmah and bina, through wisdom and understanding, through understanding that although you must engage in the world of politics, because after all, what is politics but the way in which human beings across a large scale relate to each other. But you are supposed to engage in politics, but whereas the entire rest of civilization in the ancient world, and even today, thinks that politics, the best way to manage large-scale human relationships is through force or through violence or through force of arms, the way that you are expected to do this is through influence, is through chokhmah and binah, is through wisdom and understanding. And to inspire through... people. And, to, and so, as you said, this is the mission statement of the Jew, because what we're supposed to do is to, and we absolutely need a land because we're commanded in Exodus to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exactly. You can't, you can't do that virtually. And think about it. That is, in fact, and I want to even bring that even further. That's exactly why the Israelites and why the Jewish people needed a land. It's not because, you know, some conquest is OK, but too much conquest is bad. It's precisely because the Israelites are not allowed to uh, certainly not allowed to force themselves and other people. And they're not even asked to wander throughout the world and convert people or, or to uh, to attempt to change other societies to become Jewish societies. On the contrary, what the Israelites and the Jewish people are asked to do is to be role models. What they're asked to do is to build their own society by themselves in their land and for that society to become a mirror to the rest of human civilization that the Israelites uh, can hold up and say, the world that you're living in is the world as it is, but this society in conformity with God's will and his laws and his and his his faith and inspiration, this is the world as it could be. Exactly. And that's the whole point of the Jewish people having a land is because the land is supposed to be the place where they construct this model, this beacon of inspiration and values for the rest of humanity. And that is the mission statement. I mean, that, that's what to be an individual Jew means to be a role model. To be a member of the Jewish nation means the nation to be a role model. It's all about being a role model. It's never about converting anybody by ideas or by force. We don't do that. It says it right here. You are to become a role model. You are to inspire. And I think this is, you know, as you said, what M Moses is doing is basically issuing the first biblical interpretation. And in Exodus 2, in, ex in Exodus as well, it says, uh, God says to us, you shall be my firstborn. Well, what does it mean you should be my firstborn? There were lots of peoples who chronologically preceded the Jews. Abraham came into a world with lots of peoples. So what does it mean to be the firstborn? Well, the role of the firstborn in a family typically is to be the role model, to be the example. The firstborn is usually the one who the younger children follow. And that's our charge, to be the firstborn, to be the ones that others want to follow. Exactly. And that's what Moses sums up so beautifully here. Exactly. You know, I think this this kind of puts the lie to the notion that religion and politics can never mix. It's not that religion and politics can never mix. In fact, we are charged at the highest level with bringing our our values and our 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 faith 
into the most important endeavors in our lives. And in fact, the most the, the arena where you can have the most impact on the rest of society is in the realm of politics. Again, because politics is just another word for how do human beings at large scale get along with each other. Right. Um, but the uh, the difference is that for the Hebrew Bible, what politics is about, whether it's Joseph and Pharaoh's court bringing his values into the service of other human beings, or whether it's Moses on the banks of the Jordan instructing his people on how to build a model polity, religion and politics for the Hebrew Bible means wisdom and understanding. It means it means building a just and virtuous and loving society that can be a beacon of light to all the other nations of the earth to inspire them not to become exactly like us, but to become the best version of themselves. And, and this is true for, for Jews nationally and, and- and individually. I remember when I was teaching high school in Jersey City in 94, 95, right out of college. I remember even then before I knew any text, uh, I remember thinking that I was the only Jew that these students had ever known and that some of them would ever know. And that imposed an obligation on me to be a role model. And that's exactly what Moses is saying is here is we have to be a role model individually and nationally. And your point about religion inspiring politics, I mean, Let's look at the Liberty Bell. It says on the Liberty Bell, you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land. That comes from Leviticus. Exactly. And is I, it, I'll, I'll, <laughs> this is it a, certainly inspired is the a, founders. I mean, the, the founders were basically taking their inspiration uh, pursuant to what Moses said from the Bible. And they put on the Liberty Bell itself a direct quote from Leviticus. Absolutely. And and in fact, you know, I'd, I'd go so far as to put it this way. And this is a, the, the statement I'm about to make. I have no doubt that the founding fathers uh, not only agreed with this, but would have put it more eloquently than I. And that is, you know, if the U.S. Constitution is America's founding and binding legal founding document, then the Hebrew Bible is really America's founding moral document, because that's well the... Put. The entire moral basis for this civilization and this culture is rooted in this just magnificent, enduring, and wonderful text. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ari, thank you for such an interesting conversation about Deuteronomy 4, 6. And uh, I want to go from a discussion of um, one book to a very different kind of book. And this book is uh, Andre Malraux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, where he tells the story of uh, running into a man with whom he served in the war. And he said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said to this man, in all your years of hearing confessions, what have you learned about mankind? And the priest said two things. One, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. (laughs) So in your years as a rabbi and in your years of being close with one of the towering figures of the Torah and Jewish world of the 20th century, your grandfather, Rabbi Norman Lamb, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, first of all, that, that's a, that's such a, what a wonderful quote. So it, it actually brings to mind uh, some specific memories I have uh, of my grandfather, may he live and be well. And that is, uh, first of all, you know, my grandfather, to put this in, in, in uh, sort of Jewish geographical terms, I'll explain what I mean. My grandfather was what's called the Rosh HaYeshiva, the, the uh, chief religious figure in Yeshiva University's, uh, Yeshiva University's rabbinical school, the largest rabbinical school in the world. Hmm. And the culture of that rabbinical school is that it was mostly, mostly Lithuanian. I know for most people that doesn't mean anything, but the, the Lithuanian Jewish intellectual tradition, especially of the last couple hundred years, is this very rigorous dialectical it, almost almost uh, joyless, but not in a bad way. It's this very intellectually demanding 
uh, intellectual tradition and some of the, the greatest geniuses of the last uh, 100 years, the last 200, 300 years have come from from uh, from Lithuania, in fact. So one of the greatest American theologians of the last 100 years is Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik is a Lithuanian and came out of that tradition. So and he was your grandfather's mentor, right? My grandfather's mentor. My grandfather's actually the only person to receive both his rabbinical ordination and his doctorate from Rabbi Soloveitchik. So what was always fascinating to me growing up and growing up, I just sort of intuited this. But now I, you know, (laughs) sort of like Deuteronomy, finally reflecting on life. Now I actually have a chance to reflect on this uh, and the, the, the comedy of it. You know, my grandfather was not a Lithuanian. My grandfather was from a place from an, from a region in Europe called Galicia. And Galicia was a place where, uh, again, the stereotype was people just, you know, <laughs> you know, less uh, sort of dialectically rigorous. But these are people. Who, this was a whole region that just collectively had an ability to laugh more than any other oh, region of Jews in the world. And so my grandfather was always this guy and always and, and still is this this man with this incredible sense of humor. And, and it was just so funny to see him always at the head of this cadre of of deeply, deeply, very, very serious people. And he, with a complete sense of humor, so I'll just tell you a very funny story. Um, you know, when I was when I was younger, and uh, all of my relatives can attest to this, we would regularly receive mail from my grandfather. And this was a man who was a, a first rank, a theologian of the first rank, one of the greatest, if not, I think, you know, this is uh, obviously I'm an interested party, but it is widely understood within the Jewish community that he's the greatest Jewish orator of the last uh, hundred or so years. I mean, this was a man who who towered head and shoulders above above so many of his peers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say the proof of that truth is if, if anyone wants to go listen to his sermons, they're on this, they're on the YU site. Just type into Google Brussels, Norman Lamb, and you'll have his sermons from the early 1950s all the way up to about 2000. And so he was giving these incredible sermons as an astonishingly young man. Oh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing, it's a really amazing thing. And when we were uh, kids, we used to get mail from him and the mail. Regular mail through the, through the U.S. Postal Service? Yeah, it's it's this it's this thing that uh, it's this thing that we used to have where you would like take a piece of paper and put it inside of another piece of paper and then lick it for some reason and then send it through. a Anyway, two days later. uh, Yeah, 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 exactly. So (laughs) it was sort of like a slow email. So anyway, we used to get the snail mail from him and inside would be pieces of stationery that would be full of hand drawn cartoons from him. And he was an incredible artist and it would always be these hilarious things. And, and looking back, uh, the, the funniest thing is that several of them, you know, now reviewing them as an adult, I can see that he sent them to us on board of trustees stationery. So during uh, <laughs> Yeshiva University board meetings, while he was bored out of his mind, he was busy doodling and then he'd send us all of his cartoons. So the most important thing that I learned from my grandfather is that at the the core of the human experience, the thing that will save us is the ability to laugh and the ability to smile. Uh, that's the most important thing. The second one is a a um, a piece of wisdom that he actually kept literally physically on his desk. I mean, it was written on his desk until the very day that he retired. And my actually my my younger brother was able to take it with him. Um, he had a plaque on his desk that said, "There is no limit to what you can accomplish as long as you don't care who gets the credit." And I think me, President Reagan had the same thing on his desk. Yeah, you know what? It, it could be that he was. It could be that that's where he got the inspiration. My my grandfather and and President Reagan had a had a, a bit of a relationship. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you that was his his entire life was aimed at accomplishing 
transformative, wonderful things, building wonderful things for the Jewish people, for the wider society, and whatever it took to build that, that's what he was going to do, especially as we now enter into an era with this pandemic marked by greater uncertainty, a little more chaos than we're all used to, you know, and as we found uh, within so many of our communities, the importance of being there for each other and coming together. I think that that piece of wisdom speaks louder to me than it ever has before. There is no limit to what we can all accomplish if uh, if we don't worry about getting credit and if we don't uh, if we're not concerned with with chasing glory, if we come together and if we heed the wisdom of our of our ancestors and if we carry forward the responsibility of bringing light into the future and transforming our world for the better, then there is absolutely virtually no limit to what we can accomplish. Now, just uh, before we go, just one one observation about about you, which is so interesting to me, is that uh, a lot of people who are the children and grandchildren of towering figures, I mean, obviously, there are rel- relatively few of them, but they exist. You know, you could they are kind of they kind of aggressively want to make their own way and in, in, in some sense distinguish themselves from their genuinely great forebears. But you have this comfort in bringing your grandfather's words to the modern world in being his protege. How did you develop that? The truth is, that's a very sweet thing of you to say. I should be so lucky to to even achieve a scintilla of what of what he's achieved and carry on his legacy. I think I think the truth is, if if I'm if I'm being um, honest about it, it's probably because growing up, I never thought of him as as you know Rabbi Doctor Norman Lamb. You know the, the the figure that he was. He was always we call we we call him Zaida. You know he was always just uh, our grandfather. But did you see people? People must have been coming to him for advice and and. Oh, certainly. Actually, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a great story. Uh, he used to always get the uh, the most. <laughs> he used to get phone calls, you know, from dignitaries across the world. Um, my aunt, his his youngest daughter, who who uh, unfortunately passed away just about seven years ago, seven or eight years ago. She was this wonderful, hilarious, larger than life woman. And um, you know what, my grandfather used to do often is he would, uh, and again, this gets back to the humor that's at the core of his identity. <laughs> he would always call the house just and make essentially make prank phone calls and he would put on accents and he would pretend to be somebody else, you know, so it was an understood uh, matter in the lamb household growing up as I, as I heard it from my parents that uh, if you got a phone call and somebody on the other line had a British accent, it was, it was almost certainly my grandfather. Um, So one day uh, my aunt, uh, Sarah, may she rest in peace, picks up the phone and she says, you know, lamb residents, and the voice on the other line says, may I speak to Dr. Lamb, please? And she says, suspecting that it's my grandfather, who is this? And the person on the other line goes, this is Abba Ibn. I'm calling from the United Nations. May I please speak to Dr. Lamb? And she, you know, assumes it's my grandfather. So she says, I'm sorry, I'm actually on the phone with Golda Meir now and hangs up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, turns, uh, then she uh, walks out of the room. And as she passes by uh, my grandfather's office, she sees him hard at work and something else. <laughs> realizes that it was Abba Ibn on the other line. So you know the uh, that we there there certainly were uh, no end of of very interesting, fascinating characters populating our our childhood. And but that said, you know he he was so relentless, and part of this was his his ability to laugh and his abiding sense of humor. He was so relentless in making sure that everything felt normal and everything felt even keel. So that you know, growing up 
in his household, there was this this bedrock understanding throughout the entire family that we were responsible for transmitting his values. But it never felt like a burden. It always felt like a like a fun, humorous, wonderful, lovely and exciting privilege to be able to do it. So, you know, it's even now, you know, when I'm, I'm sitting here in my office with my my library and looking at his books on the shelves, uh, both books that he authored and books of other people that he gave to me and wrote notes in, you know, it, it's it's a, and it's an imposing legacy to be certain. And it's an almost un, unmatchable legacy. But at the same time, it's it's such a I find it very comforting to know that his shoulders are available for all of us to stand on. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, uh, we're all lucky to have his work to learn from and as the Torah says to benefit from and we're lucky to have you as uh his intellectual emissary bringing his words into the modern world and having them sustained for the next generation so Ari thank you for all that you do and thank you for uh such a fascinating conversation on the rabbi's husband well that's very kind of you to say this was a total blast and uh, uh looking forward to speaking soon absolutely thank you you are the god of the brave. If you give us a friend,